Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. So it's the end of November now, and it's a wrap on Movember, Men's Health Month, where we've been discussing all things mental health and well-being. We're going to do something a bit different, a little bit special in this episode. What we're going to do is share a compilation of all our brilliant male guests this year who have bravely talked to us about their mental health and how they've been able to navigate this in their day-to-day lives and at work. It's not easy to open up and men find this particularly difficult in some cultures. So we really appreciate the honesty and openness with which the guests we've spoken to have shared with us. And we hope that you can get something from this too. An understanding of how different people approach mental health and well-being in their different day-to-day lives and how it might be impacting the men in your organization and what you can do to support them. So, first up, let's hear from Teshin Tesh Ali, who I spoke to in episode 35. Tesh is an equity partner at EY, which is one of the big four global accounting firms. I wanted to hear from you a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you do and what your journey was like. That's absolutely fine. So I'm Tess to everyone who knows me. Yeah, partly because it's always easier to say Tess than Tessine. Which always seems Is to it? How do you say your name? Tessine. Tessine. Yeah. See, That's once you say it, it's easy. No, it, is, it yeah. is for other people. But over the years, I'll have grown up into that thought. Okay, fair enough. We'll probably come back to more of that sort of thing later. Yeah, so I um, was born in the UK. Yeah, my parents uh, came from Pakistan in the 60s. So I'm second generation Muslim, yeah, of Pakistani origin, I suppose you would say, and mm-hmm. grew up in good old sort of Lancashire, northwest of England. Yeah, my dad worked in a cotton mill in Lancashire. My mum never worked at all okay. in this country. She used to be a teacher back in Pakistan, but she never worked here. And there was just my sister and I. My sister's older than me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. We, I guess, when I go back and think about those days at school, what I remember specifically is being told to ask for extra work. That always sticks in my mind. Go and ask for extra. Stay behind after. Imagine that as a child. Your friends are all wondering what you're doing. Stay behind and ask for extra homework. Yeah, because mm-hmm. of the sort of value of education, the value they placed on education. That was really strong in my mind. So then fast forward. Yeah, to me now, so audit partner at EY, one of the largest professional services firms in the world. Yeah, so a real contrast in terms of if you look at social mobility. Yeah, a real, a real sort of change from growing up in a in a modest, you know, sort of household. No, no car. We had no cars. So I remember that walking everywhere or getting the bus. Uh, you know, so from a social mobility point of view, real, real change for me. And growing up as a as a young boy in a Muslim sort of environment, yeah, mm-hmm. with a, quite a diverse community, but I had red hair, which obviously I've not got any left, <laughs> uh, brown hair, freckles and pale skin. So I never really fitted in on either side. So it was quite, it was quite, I remember being, feeling very different, yeah, mm. no matter where I was, in whichever setting I was, I always felt very different and very, I was very shy as well. I was very shy, uh, which I know is different than being an introvert, but I was shy. Um, it took me many years, even through university. So I went to university in the Northwest as well, and I'm still shy. When I, It, it was only when I left and started work at uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Cup and was thrown out into the world and basically had to go and win my own business and run my own branch. Uh, and that's when I started to understand that, you know, you just need to talk to people and they'll talk back to you. So mm-hmm. that sort of journey began there. And then I started a 
career in professional services with a different firm and joined EY 21 years ago. Up next is John Hobson. So John is the VP and CIO of Kellanova, the parent company of Kellogg, and he is from episode 43. We are always here talking about our personal experiences as well as looking at things from a theoretical corporate point of view. But I wanted to know if you have had any experiences personally, either yourself or anyone you know or care for, with uh, poor mental health that you'd be willing to share with us on the on the Wellbeing Rebellion? I think the answer is yes. Um, I personally think that, that that would be the answer for pretty much everybody if they felt comfortable being open and talking about it. Um, I... So I, I've experienced both ways. So I, I, I lost a really good friend two years ago um, who was really struggling. Well, actually, he was struggling with his mental health. We didn't really realise that, um, obviously, until it was too late. So I have a very personal you know, experience from that side. Um, but even me personally, I mean, it, it's, I think it's, it can be quite easy to think of leaders as people who actually they're completely fine there's no problem you know that you, you have that kind of facade or the or the view you have of people but um you know if i speak about me individually as a person i'm a very you know i'm an achiever obviously to get to the position i'm at and i have very high standards for myself so um when i think that i haven't met those standards for whatever reason it might be um I find that difficult, right? So I, I will hold myself very strongly to account. And there's been periods in my life where that's really pushed me quite low down in terms of how I felt about myself, how I felt about how things are going. Um, so it's really been something that over the years I, I've, I've been able to learn kind of how to, how to identify when that happens and some of the strategies that I have to use for myself to kind of avoid that, right? So whether it be talking to individuals who I know will, say the right things, give me the right boost, whether it's almost looking myself in the mirror and say, hold on a minute, you know, you're being too hard on yourself here or, or leaning on your family and, and, and things like that. So definitely I'm not somebody who would sit here and say, no, I'm completely fine the whole time. I've never, mm -hmm. never been in a bad place. That, that would not be true. Next is John Weller, Director of Recruitment Giant Michael Page from episode 39. We talk about the stigma and what it is to be a man these days. My daughter, and I love her, I'm very proud of her, she's very right on feminist. <laughs> she, she would refer to it as the toxic masculinity. And it is toxic. Not to be a man, but to feel that masculinity is defined by how, how you can solve problems on your own. Right? Yeah. And that leads to so much shame and guilt for feeling like you want or need help and that is ultimately what kills some men yeah and i have to say we're gonna go on to, to go to john now in terms of the barriers face we have the research to say what the barriers are but i kind of want to go a bit more deeper into what are the barriers that you your colleagues, your friends, mm -hmm. as opposed to what men the barriers are. So that's the research we say, but I want to know, does it match what the research said? What are the barriers that you feel mm. prevent men, like Ben, in that case, the mm. partner, seeking help earlier? I think the first point is the stats don't surprise me. So you talk about profiling of age, for instance. Yeah. So personal experience-wise, my generation and probably older, I'd say there's a stereotype. So what, what is a man is probably the first thing to say. And a man is a figure of strength who is stoic and very, let's say, focused on you are always the person that gives the support. You don't receive it. And if you receive the support, then uh, are you really fulfilling your responsibility as a man? So mm. some of it, that's cultural linked as well. So you mentioned that uh, mix of London and then Northeast. If you look at the 
tradition and let's say sort of the cultures even within the region so northeast is a very let's say masculine centric it's mining it's you know mm. fishing it's versus you know london which is very mixed so financial services service you know there's lots of different sort of mixes of people northeast is very masculine it's kind of mindset and upbringing so i'd say stereotypes is a massive one trying to step away from that is difficult if you're immersed in it you probably just say to you've got the stereotypes but then you've got your upbringing as well isn't it so your role models in life so most boys role model is their father so my dad was brought up in the military and you know if he showed any kind of emotion bar annoyance it was <laughs> it, it was a weakness we've got a very loving mother but your role model still your dad mm. so i basically frame my what should, what do i need to be based on him and he's given me lots of strengths, including DIY. But um... <laughs> that's what you're going to shout out. Uh, your dad your DIY. It's a good skills. skill to have. It's a brilliant yeah, skill to have. I'm just saying it is. It, it's helped you me well in life. So much more to the table than DIY, Keith. Just so you know. But it was never. There was never a point in you know in growing up where you sat down and basically said, you know, tell me about how you're feeling. In mm. all honesty, it's better that now. Yeah, now I'm growing up. He'll talk to me about that. Next, we have Philip Dyer, founder of Healthy Leaders Academy from episode 40. Have you ever struggled yourself personally with your mental health? Uh, and if so, how did you get through it? Well, I, I would say I think it's very considerate of you to, to actually say that I've had challenging times. And the implication there is that I've come out of challenging times. And the truth is, we've all got our stories. Everybody has challenges that take place. Perhaps the, fir the first time I'd encountered a deep sense of uh, distress psychologically was when my mother died, uh, which mm. was in 2000. And I'd be the first one to say that my, ex my personal expectation was that um, I was quite sanguine about death. And it's, it's, it's part of life. It's what part of the journey and... And I was convinced I'd read things about it. So obviously I knew about it because I'd read things about it. When my mother died, the wheels dropped off. I completely lost the plot. And it was, it was at the busiest time in my, my business. At that moment in time, big things were happening. And I wasn't coping very well at all. And it, it, sort of like it, was, it was a double whammy in a way, in the sense that my mother died and that was affecting me. But what was also affecting me was my acceptance of my inability to cope with what I was doing and what was mm. happening to me and that was a very complex time in my life I eventually worked my way through it but it, it took nearly a year to get my head around uh, the, the circumstances and taught me a big lesson about it's one thing saying it it's another thing living through it up next the brilliant Shagun Otutokun who is the managing partner of UK, the global law firm Brian K. Layton Paisner. And he is from episode 37. You just raced through that little fact. Yes, I am the managing <laughs> partner of the largest BCLP office by quite some margin. But you're also, in case anyone hadn't known, a black man. And if I look at the 1% <laughs> <the one> <laughs> report, that, that makes you a rarity, a real rarity to, to be the managing partner, no less. Do you ever recall a time when you thought that that might not happen for you purely because of who you are, where you come from, the colour of your skin? I, I didn't, I didn't harbour any doubts that, that I, if I, I can't say I was never plagued with self-doubt because very few people are not plagued by self-doubt. Mm. I think probably only psychopaths are <laughs> never plagued by self-doubt. So, so of course yeah. we all, we all, we all speaking generally, we all worry about whether we, whether we've got what it takes, whether our efforts are going to be sufficient, whether the uh, things are going to fall our way, whether the right opportunity comes along. Of course, there are all those contingencies which you, which you, you have no control over, and um, 
if if I step back and look at look at my formative years and the fact that I spent my my formative years in Nigeria in a comfortable upbringing, I have to say, with with parents who by no means were wealthy but had enough to 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 cater for their children's education, and, and my father, in his you know, very typical Nigerian way, would say, "Well, the only thing I can give you." is a good name and an education. And then after that, yeah. it's up to you. I'm sure that, that refrain <laughs> probably does, <laughs> sounds very familiar to you. Yeah, so you, 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 I came to England to boarding school with a, uh, you know, with, a, with a grounding in where I came from, what I was capable of, the lineage mm-hmm. I had, what the expectations um, I had placed on me were. And um, that is the that is what formed my mindset in 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 my studies in you know, London and Oxford and coming into the law. So did I did I did I worry that I would I wouldn't I wouldn't make it? Yes, I did, but I didn't worry I wouldn't make it because I was black. I, that mm. that is that is something which I, I I do think a lot about because I am asked a lot about it, and I can mm. I can I can say. That, in all honesty, it, it, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind, or rather, it wasn't the topmost concern I had. The top, right. the topmost concern I had was well, probably a very, a, a a strong internal critic, no doubt, formed by um, parental expectations and 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 other expectations to succeed. So it was pressure which I I I put on myself to excel because I had a because I had an expectation I wanted to live up to, uh, and of mm. course the 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 color of my skin came into came into that because once you are in a system which you you very quickly realize there are certain uh, there's there are certain stereotypes there are certain assumptions made about you uh, which mm-hmm. you you very as I say you very quickly uh, learn about experience at boarding school. In the in the mid eighties in mm-hmm. rural Suffolk um, was not a walk in the park in terms of, <laughs> in terms of mm. diversity of of knowledge and and history and background of others, and I, I will say I I made some very very good friends at boarding school some of whom are still good friends today but at, at the same time I it was just a hotbed of casual racism, you know name calling and. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. uh, that 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 went on. So you very quickly learn that, even though I would tell people when they say, "Oh, do you have um, uh, do you have houses in Nigeria? Um, do you have cars in Nigeria?" And, and I'll have yeah. to sort of, you know, learn very quickly to come back with a very sharp repost about, "Well, you know, my house in Nigeria, I can probably fit about four of your houses into my house in Nigeria if you wanted to know." So you develop a very you you, you learn to you you almost um, uh, you learn how to how almost as if attack is the f- best form of defense. And I, when I say attack, mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a violent or physical, or physical like sense. That. But it's a it's almost an armoring up. You have to develop a a a, a stance and an attitude, which in my younger years could probably verge on 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 conceit or arrogance mm. because you knew that unless you you set out your stall and define who you are you might have assumptions made about you which you were then having to counter so psychologically you you, you sort of armor up and um uh, uh and, and go out and that's the way you deal with that's where i chose i i learned to deal with the with the racism mm. and uh the uh, but to go back to your question did i did i ever think that it would get in my way i did i mm. i honestly didn't because i thought well if i'm good enough and i know i'm good enough then that will out and that will that will prevail um it's slightly naive but it was the it was a mindset that i had uh, going into the law and next we're going to hear from nick shepherd Business Development and Partnership Manager at the Greater Manchester Business Growth Hub from episode 13. Have you ever had a time where you struggled with your own mental health in the past? Yeah, I'd say that there was two occasions and what kind of both instances gave is actually 
a, a bad employer and a really good employer for how that they handled it. Um, so mm-hmm. my first sort of spell, if you'd like, was back in 2013. So it was my first ever job that I um, had from leaving college. And okay. health and well-being was just not a topic there at all. And for me, as kind of a young, vulnerable 18-year-old that didn't understand the world of work, to me, I still saw managers as teachers and that you actually can't answer them back and that the, what they say goes. Um, so I was working in a culture where the manager used to openly bully me in front of staff. So I was assistant manager to them um, and we used to manage about 30 staff per shift on kind of a zero-hour contract at a hospitality venue. Um, it kind of openly called me derogatory names in front of people and would encourage them to do the same. Um, Are you joking? In no. 2013? Yes, when I was 18 years old and this person was uh, early 30s. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was times when I called the mouths on it and said, I don't like it when you do that and carried on. Um, hospitality is a is a sector where people do work long hours. Um, it's known for that. However, I wasn't encouraged to take annual leave. So for the whole year that I worked there, I had about three days of annual leave off and then sometimes two, one or two days a week because I mm-hmm. didn't know what annual leave was and you know as a young 18 year old Mm -hmm. I would just Mm -hmm. get a block payment for not taking my annual leave I think oh that's great like it's extra money but you don't realize what annual leave gives you um just that time and break away to be yourself um made to work when I was ill um called in sick um Mm -hmm. so I, I left that employer um and then I went on to, to a different employer, but I was still kind of coming to grips with then going somewhere so informal to somewhere very, very structured and very, very corporate. And again, mm-hmm. I continue to struggle with that. Um, and it's not that they were a bad employer by that respect. However, I remember my manager taking me to the side and saying, there's something going on with you. You need to sort yourself out and I'll cover you for you while you do it. And that was fine. That was almost what I needed. But there wasn't that extra resource to kind of say, what do you need? How can we be there for you? Um, Mm. So that was that was the bad going into the could have been better. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, the second spell was earlier this year. So coming into this year, um, I just reached a point where I wasn't feeling myself um, after Christmas. And I had mm. open communication with my manager because I know that we've got that relationship and I, I can say those types of things to him. Um, but what I actually did was access our employee assistant programme. Um, right. Now, interestingly enough, before I accessed that programme, I honestly just thought it was a load of corporate nonsense that you signed up to it and that it was a commitment. Yeah. And you know, you don't want to take anything from work into something that's been funded by work. But I was so surprised at the support that was available there. So I could go away and sort myself out. Um, I actually got eight weeks of counselling that was funded through the Employee Assistance Programme. Um, Mm -hmm. It was so helpful. And then again, if I wanted to have the open dialogue with my manager and let him know, about how I was feeling, what was going on, it was knowing that he was there supporting me and that that I could go and approach those topics and we could come up with ways through that. So very long answers, but I think it's interesting that to recognise what the good and the bad is. Next, we're going to hear from Phil Jones, MBE. Managing Director of Brother UK. This is a, an IT consulting company based in Manchester. And he is speaking here with us from episode nine. You've got so much to share with our audience about how you can create a culture that really promotes good mental health and well-being. So I don't want to um, spend too long with niceties. Um, but I did want to ask you personally about your own mental health and whether there has ever been a time that you've struggled with it 
I, I think I got great coping mechanisms after sort of almost 20 years worth of self-development, self-awareness in Ghazi. However, your, your question really made me reflect about the severe load I think I was under during the pandemic period, um, particularly in the first six months of the pandemic. And, and it wasn't simply that we had a very complex environment to, uh, to deal with in our professional capacity, but I had a lot going on at home as well. My wife had uh, lost both of her par parents, so we had a lot of bereavement in the home. And um, it was a very, very difficult period for me because there was a huge amount of not only professional load, but personal load. So when we talk about things like our stress buckets, my mine were pretty full during those periods. And thank goodness I had the coping mechanisms to be able to deal with that. And what were they? Well, a little self-designed one. I'm, I'm sorry for using an acronym quickly. Um, however, uh, I use something that I call my desk policy. And what I mean by that is um, to focus on three of at least of the following four things, which is diet, exercise, sleep, and kindness, brackets to self, close brackets. So... To be really aware all the time of the load that you're under. So um, pilots would call this situational awareness. You know, how am I today? Being able to check in with yourself. And when you know that you're under load, to sort of make sure you're doing good, disciplined things and keeping perspective, going to bed early, giving your brain the chance to process all the things that it's having to process and just basically getting out and, and also you know, letting the biology of your body do the things it can do in order to rebalance you. So that little desk policy was, I guess, my savior. Uh, lots of hours on the bike, um, you know, plenty of sleep, uh, trying to reduce alcohol intake uh, substantially because it's easy to have a glass of wine every night under such load, right? Um, so just being very, very conscious about those things and, and, and needing to self-care. Next, David Gibson. So he's a partner, employment law at Burnett Silicata, and he was in an episode 19. I wanted to start on a more personal note. Now, I know both of you know my personal struggles with mental health. Um, issues in the past and I did wonder if either of you have had experience of poor mental health either yourself or someone you've cared for that's made this a topic that's more personal to you yeah I, th I think it's it's very dear to my heart on on two levels to be honest number one in terms of you know I, I trained and worked in London for a number of years and you know it is a very stressful environment and one which can have a profound impact uh, on your mental health, on your confidence, on your self-esteem, um, on your ability to do all those wonderful, loving things that you'd want to do in a capital city. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm quite open about it, is that, that that can cause a lot of struggles as well in terms of the, the demands of clients, in terms of the demands of law firms, and, and that, can, that can create difficulties. Um, and you've got to be able to have the, the sense and the power to be able to stand back from that sometimes. I think my, my, my second uh, main area of interest as well is that, um, you know, I, I do some volunteer work uh, for an organisation which uh, deals with people with mental health problems. And I, I, I'm, you know, bound by provisions of confidentiality, but suffice mm -hmm. to state that, you know, we have a society which is ill at ease with itself uh, at the present time for a broad range of issues and right across, you know, um, social groupings, genders, etc., so it's something that Anna and I not only have knowledge of, but indeed are very passionate um, about ensuring that clients and individuals get the right level of advice. But yeah, it stems from a personal experience, but I think also that we, you know, we, we feel this is a very, very important topic for employers and employees to be facing in a structured and effective way. So up next is the November speakers. So these were the speakers in our November episode. Um, so we're going to do a comprehensive summary of the discussions that, that highlighted some of the challenges and the stigma that men face when confronting mental health and well-being in the workplace. So we're going to hear from this lovely gentleman again. We're going to have John Phillips, John, Nigel Crevins, who's the director at global law firm DWF. We are always 
here talking about our personal experiences as well as looking at things from a theoretical corporate point of view. But I wanted to know if you have had any experiences personally, either yourself or anyone you know or care for, with uh, poor mental health that you'd be willing to share with us on the on the Wellbeing Rebellion? I think the answer is yes. Um, I personally think that, that that would be the answer for pretty much everybody if they felt comfortable being open and talking about it. Um, I... So I, I've experienced both ways. So I, I, I lost a really good friend two years ago um, who was really struggling. Well, actually, he was struggling with his mental health. We didn't really realise that, um, obviously, until it was too late. So I have a very personal you know, experience from that side. Um, but even me personally, I mean, it, it's, I think it's, it can be quite easy to think of leaders as people who actually they're completely fine there's no problem you know that you, you have that kind of facade or the or the view you have of people but um you know if i speak about me individually as a person i'm a very you know i'm an achiever obviously to get to the position i'm at and i have very high standards for myself so um when i think that i haven't met those standards for whatever reason it might be um I find that difficult, right? So I, I will hold myself very strongly to account. And there's been periods in my life where that's really pushed me quite low down in terms of how I felt about myself, how I felt about how things are going. Um, so it's really been something that over the years I, I've, I've been able to learn kind of how to, how to identify when that happens and some of the strategies that I have to use for myself to kind of avoid that, right? So whether it be talking to individuals who I know will, say the right things, give me the right boost, whether it's almost looking myself in the mirror and say, hold on a minute, you know, you're being too hard on yourself here or, or leaning on your family and, and, and things like that. So definitely I'm not somebody who would sit here and say, no, I'm completely fine the whole time. I've never, mm -hmm. never been in a bad place. That, that would not be true. So, How can companies, say the, the HR leaders listening, how can they make sure that their leaders are equipped to cope with this new responsibility so that they don't struggle with burnout or emotional apathy or anything like that? What can, what can they do to support their business leaders in the tricky balancing act of managing the um, mental well-being, emotional well-being of their team members? I mean, I, I think I think that you have to start actually with the importance of, of again, you know, human leadership, empathetic leadership. But, I mean, some organisations will not value that, right, necessarily. Right? It sounds a little bit crazy in some ways, but some organisations would say, actually, that's not, that's not necessarily a priority for me. And I think if that's the case, it's a different thing. I think you have to start with you know, the importance of that, why it is important to have that and what that then will lead into in terms of, you know, everybody can bring them best self to work, they can do their best work, they're going to be the most, bring the most value, the most productivity, all that good stuff, right? Um, but I think if you start there, then you drop into, I think there's a need to really think about how do we yeah, how do we build capability in people in people leaders and what does be building capability in people leaders mean today because i think what it means today is something very different to what it meant again five years ago so it's kind of thinking about um how we how we build resilience into our you know into our people yeah how do we have those difficult conversations how do we support but actually when does it become something that you need to ask for help and, and I guess then go into, okay, well, do you know where to go to ask for help? You know, what is that? What is that individual or that organisation or that group of people within your company where you can go with that kind of challenge? Um, because I think, again, where I always come back to is, and this is based on my own experiences, everyone wants to do the right thing, right? So every people leader wants to help the people in their team. They want to say the right thing. They want to... They want to help on a human level where i think people sometimes can struggle is not knowing not knowing what to do or almost thinking i don't i'm not a trained professional therefore 
I'm worried I'm going to say the wrong thing. Am I going to upset somebody? Am I going to... That, that's the thing, the, the things that are always going through people's heads. And I think to get quite simple and say, actually, if you listen and say, look, I, I hear all this, I'm not an expert, but we, you know, we have these individuals, we have this program, we have this here and there, which is available to you. You know, can we start exploring something like that to, to understand that it's okay to you know, to go and ask a professional, go and ask somebody who is trained. Um, I think there are lots of things around that, but I do think it comes back to awareness and capability building for the people, leaders in your organisation so that they they feel much better prepared to manage their team, but also manage themselves and, the, and their own emotion around it, yeah. So men face a higher risk of suicide. Statistics showing that men are more likely to complete suicide attempts than women. In the UK, the rate of male suicide is alarmingly high. Three out of four suicides in the UK are by men, making suicide the leading cause of death for men under 50. I'm surprised by that. Why? You think it would higher or less? I'm surprised that it's the leading cause of death of men under 50. If it was under 30, yeah, okay. Then you think that, yeah. But I'm surprised that suicide kills more men in this country than any other thing heart attacks and cancer under the age of 50. in the us not much different either so the suicide for men is about 3.7 times higher for than women according to the cdc so that's the center of dd control and prevention globally though according to the world health organization men account for approximately 78 percent of global suicide that's a very, that's the one big killer, really. So the suicide rate is high among middle aged and older men. Interesting, I thought it was younger, but it's not. And the suicide rate in the UK is among men aged 45 to 49. So that is the age, John, you're in. Mm. That's the bucket, really. Mm. <laughs> and he's still got a couple and of I've months got, left. I've got a couple of months, but that is the age range we're talking about. It's also the age of a lot of your colleagues. At the moment, so that's, mm. the, mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to draw attention to that. Yeah, we have the research to say what the barriers are, but I kind of want to go a bit more deeper into what are the barriers that you, your colleagues, your friend, mm-hmm. are to pay to what men the barriers are. So that's the research we say, but I want to know does it match what the research said? I think the first point is the stats don't surprise me. So you talk about profiling of age, for instance. Yeah. So personal experience-wise, my generation and probably older, I'd say there's a stereotype. So what what is a man is probably the first thing to say. And a man is a figure of strength who is stoic and very, let's say, focused on you are always the person that gives the support. You don't receive it. And if you receive the support, then uh, are you really fulfilling your responsibility as a man? So some of it, that's cultural linked as well. So you mentioned that in the mix of London and then Northeast. If you look at the tradition and let's say sort of the cultures even within the region. So Northeast is a very, let's say, masculine centric. It's mining, it's you know, fishing, it's versus, you know, London, which is very mixed. So financial services, service, you know, there's lots of different sort of mix of people. Northeast is very masculine. It's kind of mindset and upbringing. So I'd say stereotypes is a massive one. Trying to step away from that is difficult if you're immersed in it. You probably just say to, uh, you've got the stereotypes, but then you've got your upbringing as well, isn't it? So your role models in life. So most boys' role model is their father. So my dad was brought up in the military. And you know, if he showed any kind of emotion, bar, annoyance, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a weakness. <laughs> We've got a very loving mother, but your role model still your dad. Mm. So I basically frame my what should, what do I need to be based on him, and he's given me lots of strengths, including DIY. But um... <laughs> that's what you're going to shout out <laughs> um, that your dad is your DIY. It's a good skills. skill to have. It's a brilliant yeah, skill to have. I'm just saying it. Is. It, it's helped you me well in life. So much more to the table <laughs> than DIY, Keith. Just so you know. But that's down to awareness there, isn't it? I yeah, think, yeah. I think And that's so. why there's an age bracket. So yeah. for me, it's just my generation and older are more uptight mm-hmm. yeah, unless they throw <laughs> themselves in. But then 
if I look about the you know down and the people that I manage at work and friends that are younger as well, then there's a lot more freedom in their openness. They'll express how literally they'll express how they feel, and they don't mind. Even the guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, what, what kind of age are you talking about? Uh, I'd say thirty and downwards. I'd okay. say okay. you'd see a very big difference in my age mates still. A lot of them won't. Mm. So I, I can probably name or yeah, on one hand and less than that, probably two fingers <laughs> that who's actually. And we used to badge them as the softer ones. Mm. So that kind of uh, yeah. So there's still yeah, exactly. Well, again, within that within that process, I go back to university and think about how you define someone who was let's say in touch with their emotions. <laughs> how was that job? <laughs> we went to uni together and I'm sure some of those people are listening now. How was that job? <laughs> no, no, let's just keep it clean, but it yeah, was yeah, just yeah, yeah. yeah, they were so soft and let's say in touch. We'll just yeah. leave it as that. <laughs> the other point I was gonna make as well is yeah, jumping onto that awareness aspect, it's very secret. Yeah, again, if you look at kind of people who I know of now that struggled, then there's a lot of secrecy surrounding mental health because of the, let's say, you know, all the guilt, etc., linked to mental health or poor mental health within men. They don't volunteer it. And when I find out after the case, then you wish you could have done something. Yeah, okay. But you find out after because they weren't comfortable to talk about it because of the social issues of you know, being banded as weak or, yeah, so even though we're talking about it now, yeah. a lot of companies are doing well-being awareness and all the things, do you still think people still can't talk about it? They can, well, yeah, we're talking about it, well, to help, but when they, I'm going to say shit hit the fan, I'm just going to say sorry about that, but when it comes down to it, when the real thing has happened, they won't still talk. But yeah, I've seen it, but then they, at that stage, they are absolutely broken. They're not at a point where you yeah. can pick them up it, that, that's a case of they, yeah. they need to they need, they need, they need proper help yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. but yeah, I think the other bit though is it's just a case if you make a, a big assumption that you'd say the masculine <laughs> toxic masculinity as Layla frames it <laughs> but the other aspect there is personalities so I'm a, I'm a, definitely an introvert and that has a massive bearing on I think yeah, as a man anyways how much you talk anyway Mm-hmm. So if you if you basically have a your role model, your cultural influences, and then you're an introvert, then you just start knocking off all the reasons why you wouldn't go and talk about how you feel. And the truth is, we've all got our stories. Everybody has challenges that take place. Perhaps the first the first time I'd encountered a deep sense of uh, distress psychologically was when my mother died. Uh, which was in 2000. And I'd be the first one to say that my ex- my personal expectation was that um, I was quite sanguine about death and it's, it's, it's part of life, it's what part of the journey and, and I was convinced I'd read things about it. So obviously I knew about it because I'd read things about it. When my mother died, the wheels dropped off. I completely lost the plot and it was it was at the busiest time in my my business at that moment in time. Big things were happening, and I wasn't coping very well at all. And it it sort of like it was it was a double whammy in a way, in the sense that my mother died and that was affecting me. But what was also affecting me was my acceptance of my inability to cope with what I was doing and what mm-hmm. was happening to me. And that was a very complex time in my life. I eventually worked my way through it, but it, it took nearly a year to get my head around uh, the, the circumstances and taught me a big lesson about it's one thing saying it, it's another thing living through it. Mm. And you, you touch on something that's really, I think, not spoken about enough. It's that it, sometimes it's not just the challenge that presents itself, whether it's the death of a loved one, a job loss or a divorce or even just a difficult boss. It's your acceptance of your inability to deal or handle that challenge. Sometimes we just keep doing that. If I just keep grinning and bearing it, if I just keep on, then it will go. And that is the way danger lies in my experience and probably yours. It's the ability to 
to actually accept that we need help, one, and then to go and find it, two, is it's the first step in, in, in getting through these kinds of mental or emotional challenges. Well, it's perhaps here I'll, what I'll do is mention the the, the dreaded R word resilience, yeah. <laughs> because um, I know I know exactly what I did when my mother died was I grabbed hold initially of male stereotypes, so that was a stiff upper lip. I can cope. Why am I being like this? I'm mm. being weak. So so in effect, I picked up a hammer, a metaphorical hammer, was hitting myself in the head with it. I didn't have the tools to actually cope with the situation. I didn't seek help. I didn't get any guidance from anybody. I was mm. struggling through the process. Now, uh, in contrast, uh, unfortunately, back in 2009, my brother uh, passed. And I had at the time uh, contact with a fantastic HR specialist named Sarah. And she was brilliant. Uh, she she was very helpful in terms of how I reconciled myself with his passing. And I know we're talking about, uh, I don't want to sound mawkish because I'm talking about the death of my mother, the de- death of my brother. There are extreme situations where everybody faces death. It's something that's common mm-hmm. to everybody. And it helped immensely that I had the tools available, not only a professional to talk to, but also in between the time of my mother passing and my brother, I'd learned about... The, that process of grieving certain acceptances that have to be dealt with, and also my my lifestyle and, and approach. So building your toolbox is not just a case of building it and putting tools in it, but building it, putting tools in it, and then getting them out and using them when you need them. Mm-hmm. But you can't you can't access a toolbox unless you put tools in it. Mm-hmm. The second point I want to talk about is that dreaded R word that I like loathe i'm not sure resilience it's just it's I think it's a, yes but it's a word i think is misused and abused and it can sometimes be used by organizations to put the onus on the employees to sort the problem out the problem is that you're not strong enough yeah. as opposed to the problem is actually we are not creating an environment that will enable you to succeed so I, I like the word resilience. I think it's something that actually we do need to develop. Everybody needs to be able to take a level of stress and to just deal with the blows that life throws at you. However, it's not a substitute for an organization also taking responsibility for creating a culture where that is possible. But the question I have is how can we increase our personal resilience is there a way or is it set at birth like you're more resilient than me and no, no I, I, I don't I don't I don't believe that it's set at birth it, I, like I said earlier it, it isn't innate it's some it's a skill that can be developed and can be improved upon as you mature and get older uh, so the scars of experience generally help people to develop their uh, resilience mm-hmm. unfortunately Culturally, there is a leaning towards using medication as a form of resilience, a coping mechanism. So the use of antidepressants and various other products to assist alcohol. I mean, only this morning on uh, on the BBC Radio 4, I was listening that over the past 20 years, the number of deaths which have occurred due to excessive alcohol consumption have increased by 80%. Mm, So uh, there's a lot of self-medication with alcohol as a coping mechanism because of the stress that they're under. Mm -hmm. And we get back again to that word, why? So why are we in an environment that is like a pressure cooker? Mm -hmm. And why am I supposed to be able to cope with this? Uh, I do sport at at a competitive level and have done for many decades now. And there is, it's not possible to perform like I perform in a competition every day. No, no sports person does that at all. They prepare for that. So there's a peak and then you come down. There's organizations that expect to drive people up to a level of performance and stay up here all the time. And mm. that, that's just not sustainable. It just isn't. So somebody in a room has said, we can save money by losing two members of the team in this area. We can make more money. 
But the, the long-term impact is that you burn out the ones that you've got left instead of actually thinking about their long-term potential. So you burn the team out. The best rowers back in the, in the days of the, of the Vikings weren't the ones that were slaves that were being whipped. It was the ones that were working as a team because they went at a pace that worked together, not, not because they were thrashed to make it happen, because they wanted to make it happen. That's a big difference. It, it's awful to see people coming into the work environment and all they ever feel is the, the burst of adrenaline because all they know they're going to face is a stressful environment. Doesn't It's not sustainable. We talk a lot about the fact that the whole sort of, it's not even Generation X, is it? X, Y, Z, I forget the, mm-hmm. the, the letter, that people, if they're not happy, if they don't feel that they've, they've got a happy and productive working life, they will move on. And so there's an importance in helping your staff achieve a good balance between their work and their personal life and enabling people to have a better, better mental health because it will work for you as a business in a number of ways. It'll make them more productive because happy people are more productive people. That, 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 and also you're more likely to, retain, to attract people, retain people if uh, you're treating them in, a, in a, a better way. Having said that, I'm not in any way saying this is a completed job. This is a work in progress. So I think the awareness, my perception is that the awareness within the legal profession of the importance of good mental health amongst your workforce is is much better and higher than it was. Having said that, there is still, of course, work to do. The, The nature of law is that it can be very pressured. The work can be very demanding. And one of the things that now with lots of other employers, of course, that we are feeling our way into a, is that sort of new working life, that how that works. A lot of us now, we're working in this hybrid way. So we don't all work at DWF all the time at home anymore. We're spending some time in the office, some of the time at home. That can have huge benefits for us in terms of being able to organize your working day. You know, I, I like that that hybrid style of working. I like the fact that I can do a bit of work in the evening. And you know, I, I have that that agility um, not just in terms of geographic location, but in terms of how I can organize my working day. But then we need to be very aware that there are challenges that that presents as well. It's that, when do you shut off? When do you, mm. if you if, if you can always work, then there, there can be some people who will always work. And that's not, you know, that's not the right way. Exactly. It's not sustainable. It's not, it's not, it's not good for you. Because I know you're such a champion of people and of people being treated fairly what I would call a well-being rebel. What would you want to see law firms, other law firms, your law firm, adopting as a priority for workplace well-being for, the, for its employees? One thing that I would say as a profession, rather than this being particularly centred on you know, the firm that I work at now, sure. but I think that something that... I'm very passionate about is increasing the increasing the diversity of the of the, of the profession. Um, I think that I just think that's it's not only the right thing to do, but I do think it makes for a better working space. Now you may say, well, I'm t- if I'm talking about diversity in terms of things like race, gender, neurodiversity, all of those things, I think. Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking here about well-being, particularly centered on the sort of on mental well-being, but I no, think but that it counts. I, 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 I think it. it's all part of the same jigsaw. It is. It absolutely um, is part of that. And, and, and that is something that certainly within law is better now than it was, but there is still a lot of work mm-hmm. to do. For example, the, the gender diversity or lack of it within certain areas of the profession that, that still... It, law is a profession where gender diversity is very good at, mm-hmm. at the early stages of people's career. I think I'm, mm-hmm. I'm correct in saying that more women go into law now than, than men. And yet still, as you go higher up that, that pyramid, we still Narrow lose and lose and funnel. lose. Now, yeah. um, within the area of law that I work in, that is very often not the case. You know, if I look back on the people who have managed me over the course of my career, mm. most of them have been women in positions of 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 influence. But that's not the case across, I think employment law, um, you, it's still the case you, you you get a greater gender diversity within employment law than you do perhaps mm-hmm. in certain other um, areas of law. Or well, that's less so than it, than, it, than it used to be. 
But there is still a lot of work to do in that diversity space with regards to um, race and ethnicity within law. That's there's a huge amount of work that still needs to oh, be done. So you read there. the one percent report, did you? No, I can't say that I have read the one percent report, and that's a failing on my part. Um, yes, I, I, it's I interesting. But it, it, it just by you know by my experience of the law, I look around and mm-hmm. I can see it. And you know why is that? Are we are we why are we not attracting? people from a diverse background into the into the profession and whilst i'm not you know equating putting all protected characteristics to use an expression from the equality act under one umbrella and saying it's all the same of course there there are all sorts of different issues and challenges and within different areas and and what affects gender and sex is very different from what affects race and ethnicity is what affect from what affects um people with disabilities, there are all sorts of different challenges. But I think the, 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 the greater the diversity that exists within the profession, it, it can only be for, um, for the good because people bring different perspectives. And that's, and it's sort of, end, if, if we're coming to, <laughs> coming to the end of, of this, perhaps we sort of, we're ending it almost about, in a sense, about where we began. Yeah. Because one of the things that I like about employment law is that, is the human being, is the diversity, the fact that, and all the challenges that that presents, um, because it does present, you know, it's one of those things, you never know when the phone rings, what it's going to be about. And that can make it very challenging. It makes it very interesting as well, because, you know, human beings are interesting. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, it, if, if there was one thing that I think is, is that as a profession, we need really to be, well, one of the things that we need to be um, working hard at. Diversity is it. Last, but by no means least, we're going to wrap up with Mark Ricks from episode 15. Mark is a director of Wellbeing at Work World, a global conference organiser that is passionate about mental health and wellbeing in the workplace. You are the only person in my career so far who has such a global perspective on mental health and well-being um given the work that you do at well-being at work world and i just think it's something that the audience will be excited and interested to know that mental health isn't just something that we deal with here in the west but it's it's affecting everyone globally and how we're approaching it so yeah. i'm excited to talk to you yeah. um but before we dive into all that stuff I just wanted to know a little bit more about you. Can you talk to us a little bit about your own personal experiences with mental health and well-being? Have you ever struggled with it? Yeah, well, I thought about this question. And on reflection, I think the lockdown in 2020 was a struggle. Um Although at the time, I didn't think it was the case, to be honest. Uh, I was living in Oman with my wife, Zoe. And I was the CEO of a media company at the time. We published a national daily newspaper, had a weekly magazine, Mm. websites. We ran events, that kind of thing. Um, And the government banned all printed media. And we had to move to digital publishing like overnight. um, Because they believe that anything printed is going to pass COVID on, right? Okay. And to be fair, who the hell knew, right? Nobody knew. Mm. It was unprecedented. So we, yeah. you know, we just took it as good advice, really. But that was our business. So it was pretty devastating. Um, and that was on top of being restricted to your home and allowed out for an hour a day only to exercise and get essentials. So not different to anywhere else in the world, I suspect. Uh, but we did have military helicopters flying around and drones and the police making sure you were doing what you should be doing. And we were in a foreign country, so, you know, it's a little bit scary. Mm. Um, so an unprecedented situation in a foreign country, away from family, and it was hard for everyone. Um, this was just our version of hard, right? And I, I, I did enjoy the solitude and the huge amounts of time I suddenly had to do things uh, I had wanted to do, but, you know, never seemed to really have the time, like learning guitar solos or reading or Netflix or, you know. Um, And I think other than being with my wife and exercising more, I became a bit antisocial. A bit of a hermit? Yeah, a bit reclusive, actually. That's Mm. the word I would use. 
um, a little bit withdrawn, and that just isn't me, you know. I'm, that's not my personality at all. This was the second year of my tenure as CEO of this company, and I think the close bonds I'd formed in my first year with the team actually enabled a successful virtual operation that we switched to and and a support network, I guess, uh, in those times. Um, the business was in trouble, you know, with cash flow and no advertising revenue, no events. We weren't allowed to print. We had a printing our own printing press. When I think about those times, it was really horrible because I I never thought I'd ever suffered from any kind of mental health issue. But mm-hmm. I certainly think I did then. And I think good old-fashioned, regular, daily communication with staff was the key, the primary driver being to ensure their well-being, when I think about it, their safety both physical in some cases and psychologically. You know, even to the point of food and shelter, don't forget we were in Oman. You know, I had staff that were struggling to put food on the table for their families uh, Mm. because we had had to, you know, suspend salaries and all kinds of things. It was was pretty Maslow-esque, you know, the basic needs uh, triangle. We were right at the bottom. Um, and there was no furlough scheme going on there or anything like that, yeah. and people needed help and support. So I think, in short, to answer the question, when have I suffered personally with mental health? I think then. So that's it, folks. It's been a, a month. It's been a lovely month. And we hope you've really enjoyed listening to this episode, this November month mashup of men's mental health as much as we have. If you haven't listened to any of these episodes in full, please do go back and listen to them and share them with your colleagues. It's so insightful and it's so needed that we feel comfortable to share just how we're feeling, whether we're men, women, or gender fluid, but we just need to feel comfortable being who we are and how we feel. Um, So if this helps anyone to do that, then we are just so glad. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.